economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, a lot of stuff's been in the news here. Dr. Seuss was among the, the latest hot topics over the last week and a half, two weeks. I guess by the time this podcast rolls out, might be a little bit older news, but still, I'm sure other things will have popped up that are similar in nature. And we thought it was appropriate to take kind of an economics and philosophical viewpoint and weave in some faith components as well related to issues with this. There's certainly a a free market angle where it appears that the owners and publishers of Dr. Seuss voluntarily pulled that out and, and how much pressure was there. We, we really don't know if they just did that on their own. That sounds like free enterprise to me. So I think there's a lot of different issues going on and we thought this would be a good one to uh, cover today. So Justin, you wanted to leave things off? Sure. So I think it was about two weeks ago and Dr. Seuss Enterprises, which is the, the business that prints the Dr. Seuss books, they announced that they would no longer print six Dr. Seuss books due to what they described as insensitive and racist imagery. And I actually haven't read all six of the books. I have because my son got them read too and had one of them memorized, I think, almost at a, at a very young age. So, yeah, and I don't remember all six, but my wife pointed out at least three of them to me because we still have the old books downstairs that we kind of plan on reading to our grandkids and, and otherwise because he sure turned out great. But yeah, so... I think I recognize like two of the books on the list and we have a bunch of Dr. Seuss books, but I, I actually don't think maybe it was the star one that we, but look, I think, I think a good thing to, to say is something like, let's just stipulate that some of the content in these books is racist and offensive. Yeah, no, I, I looked it over and I, I thought some of it was insensitive in terms of today's day and age. So uh, he certainly wrote those back what, 60 years ago. I can't remember what the date was, but many years ago, which doesn't make it right, of course, but yeah, we can take it given that there was some stuff in there. Yeah, but it seems to me that this kind of response is symptomatic of a culture that's kind of eating itself. And, you know, when, when I was growing up in the 90s, they, they would have a list, the American Library Association would put out a banned books list. And it was supposed to be, you know, the mark of how, you know, Catholic and liberal and tolerant libraries are that they don't ban books and that uh, those books on the banned book list are books that you can actually go down to the library and get, Mm -hmm. even though people found them offensive. And actually what the banned book list is, is it's actually not a list of books that were actually banned by any libraries. It's a list of books that were most often requested to be banned. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so we've had countercultural books for as long as books have been written. Maybe starting with Martin Luther at the printing press. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was probably on the banned book list for the Catholics, too. But so <laughs> this, it makes me crazy because, 
the libraries are currently pulling those Dr. Seuss books off their shelves, right? And making it the case that you can't borrow them. And those Dr. Seuss books won't go on the banned book list because the Dr. Seuss books getting pulled aren't examples of people complaining about books that don't get banned. That's what they call a banned book. It's actually an example of a library institutionally taking the books away. Um, so we have this situation where books that are banned are not called banned books. Um, and books that aren't banned, but people complain about, are held up as examples of banned books that, that we should be proud of. And uh, this kind of like linguistic insanity to me yeah, has to bother me. I'm kind of thinking how this is similar to maybe even some international trade arguments of protectionism that, you know, we've never had a history of doing that is kind of what you're saying. People would ask books to be banned, but they would ultimately be left for the people to decide whether it's, you know, what they want to do with it. And you could use it as a educational tool of what not to write, I guess, uh, it, but it was still available information. And so this protectionist attitude, I think where we're going with this podcast is, is that going to be healthy for our culture long-term or not? Yeah. And, you know, actually I would get of a lot of my understanding about the facts in the Dr. Seuss case to uh, you know, this person, Polymath on Twitter, and they put out a newsletter and it's, it's very good. And he analyzed the, the Dr. Seuss thing in depth. Um, and one of the things he pointed out is, look, a lot of things contained really racist imagery. And when Looney Tunes put out a DVD set of all their old cartoons, there was actually an introduction to the cartoons where Whoopi Goldberg is talking about how, look, these cartoons are racist. Now, she is saying, she's not saying you shouldn't watch them. She's saying you need to understand, you know, if we're coming to these cartoons, that some of this imagery is racist and here's why. She isn't saying don't sell these. She's actually wants to use it as a teaching moment, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that is a much better way to deal with things in your past that you find objectionable. And this idea that we can kind of, you know, rewrite history and you know, kind of expiate all the... It's kind of like, this is what racism looks like. Let's not do it again. Or this is why we don't act this way. Uh, but it seems like a lot of people are saying, well, this is what's ingrained uh, systemic racism, that that's, this is the type of stuff that's causing problems. And I guess that would be part of what's issue. Uh, you know, are they right? I, I, I don't know for sure, I guess, if some of those things lead to deeply ingrained things. I, that, I guess that would be some sort of empirical question that could be tested. I don't know how much of that work's been done, but. I think there's also a question of relevant comparison. And so it could be true that these, as we postulated, it could be true that the books are full of, you know, and any given thing that's being talked about at the time is that has these racist images or other things like that. But for a long time, we in our society had this idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant. You've probably heard that phrase before. Another way of saying it would yeah. be that the longer evil is deprived of air, the worse it becomes. I think there's something to this, you know, mm. thought that there's something valuable about getting old bad ideas out there for discussion for people to freely discuss. So that way they have an answer for them. If we just hide all of these old bad images or, you know, old bad arguments or things like that, that are steeped in immorality, people aren't going to know how to respond to them if someone starts pushing them out again.
Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really think that that's maybe a dangerous path to go down. We're sort of making ourselves less anti, we're making ourselves more fragile. Maybe it's a better way to put it. Yeah, it creates an underground economy that through, let's say, the purchase and sale of these books or something that, that has a little more mystery to it and, and maybe appeal for some people than as opposed to, like you said, if the light was shed on it. Yeah, and it's also just mind-numbingly dumb to me that people think that trying to impose some kind of ban like this will actually work in the sense that it will make people not want these things anymore. You know, you cannot buy the books on Amazon anymore. You can't buy them on eBay, I don't even think. No. You can buy Mein Kampf on Amazon, which <laughs> is Hitler's book, right? Uh, now, I take it one of the reasons you are still permitted to read Mein Kampf is so that if somebody comes along and starts saying a lot of things that sound a little bit like Mein Kampf, you can go, hey, we've seen this before, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but like Peter was saying, if you deprive everybody of, you know, even access to what a bad idea looks like, how are you going to know what a bad idea looks like when, you, when one comes around the bend again? So I, I guess that was two points. First is that these bands see, I mean, the ALA should know since they have been touting these banned book lists as, you know, banned books are somehow cool for 40 years. And then they're going to uh, all of a sudden expect that a ban that they hand down is just going to be, you know, swallowed without any repercussions. I, I guess I'd like Peter's thoughts on my, my opening comment, though. Like, as far as I understand it, this was a voluntary change from the publisher, the owner of that material. I don't know what behind the scenes might, but we've certainly seen this in corporate America of them responding to the public, which in some ways is, is good, or at least we argue as economists, that they're responding to demand and, and changing their ways. It's actually the invisible hand maybe starting to correct a wrong, um, which sometimes we don't wait around long enough to do. But if the consumer really has preferences that way to, to not see that imagery or that story or, or whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's certainly within the rights of the owner of that content to alter it. Yeah, well, uh, listen, the, these businesses and these organizations that are either subject to market power or subjects through the consumer or subjects to donations or something like that, essentially their reliance on other people. I think that they just respond to things like we respond to the weather, right? When it's rainy, we put an umbrella out. That, By the way, that doesn't make umbrellas good. It doesn't make it good that we have to open an umbrella to go outside when it's raining. It just is. And so I think these businesses do the same thing. Is when public opinion, especially very loud and vocal public opinion, turns against a specific thing, which, by the way, maybe tells you the power or lack thereof, you know, the people who were previously demanding these different books be bans that used to be celebrated. By the way, I think for the most part, these were people without power requesting these bans. Whereas now it seems like there's a very powerful lobby behind this attempt to ban these Dr. Seuss books and other books like this. And these businesses are, for better or worse, just responding like it's raining outside. They're putting up their umbrella when they walk outside. This doesn't make it a, you know, a good thing. There, there's lots of voluntary things that could happen in the world that I think would make the world a worse place. But it does maybe speak to, uh, you know, what our response should be or shouldn't be. So that, that would be my thoughts on that, Russ. Well, as you were talking to, I had some other things I thought about that. You know, any news can be promotion. So this maybe maybe Dr. Seuss sales has been down. I don't know what, what it looks like, but this certainly got a big splash of news. And then all of a sudden got people like, my wife went downstairs and grabbed the book off the shelf that we hadn't opened in probably 15 years. 
So it's bringing awareness to the Dr. Seuss brand. And so at least people are exposed to it again. And then lastly, like you said, when it quits raining, potentially, or whatever five years from now looks like, Dr. Seuss comes out and releases the vintage Dr. Seuss books, right? So if it's not raining, it'll be an opportunity for them to re-release the original vintage Dr. Seuss. That, that's on the table, right? I mean, they could always release it later. They didn't somehow have a contract with the public that we're never going to release this again. They just pulled it for now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that we, we could kind of continue this conversation two different ways, maybe after the break even. One way is to talk about the amorality, and I, I don't, I'm not saying that is a, a bad thing necessarily. It's, again, just a description. The amorality of capitalism, and that is that, you know, the capitalism is a system that responds to the morality of people. It doesn't have morality in itself. And so that just led economists such as Joseph Schumpeter to say that the ultimate end of capitalism will come from the capitalist. And, and this, the second direction that we could take it is... So what do we do as people who think that, for example, sunlight is the best disinfectant or think that, you know, we should be consistent about how we treat things like banned books or, or materials? What, what should we do in this world that's kind of, you know, being reshaped around us? And how do we respond to incidents like this? So I think that'd be two different possible directions we could take after the break. All right. Sounds like a couple of good cliffhangers. We'll see you back in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Visit Donate sucks.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith in economics and action. We have lots of great student programs here at Ottawa. Next week, we're kicking off our Urbit uh, educational session where we have some people from Urbit uh, presenting materials along with uh, Professor Justin Clark and kind of learning on how to go digitally off the grid. So if you're tired of Facebook or somebody else always being able to track your stuff, Urbit is a solution for that on how you can have peer-to-peer communication. And so that kind of privacy can lead to some flourishing of its own. So if you or someone else you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or us today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right. So Peter was going to lead us off. He had a couple cliffhangers and I thought on the amorality, I always come to mind of a brick. A brick is amoral. A brick doesn't care if you build it to build an orphanage, as Dave Ramsey says in one of his videos, or a brick can be thrown through the window. The brick don't care. Morality comes from the human who uses the brick. And so that's where you were going with the amorality of capitalism. Yeah, so I, I, I think capitalism very similarly can be used for things that I think are both immoral and immoral. The system itself isn't really, you know, concerned with selecting for one of those. The selection comes from consumers. And so ultimately, if you have an immoral people associated with capitalism, you're going to expect like immoral desires to be met through, through buying and selling. And now the the system of capitalism, by the way, I would argue generates by itself, assuming it doesn't get stopped, it generates more wealth, which I think is correlated with things like health and otherwise. So I think there are some moral results of capitalism, uh, the system by itself. And research shows from the from the poor among us, too. If yes. You, if you compare 
the poorest people in a fairly free country versus a fairly not free country, the poor are better off in a, in a more capitalist system. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to be clear that uh, Russ is exactly right there. I wanted to be clear what I'm saying is not that, you know, we should be indifferent between capitalism and socialism. Both of them produce the same moral outcomes. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that capitalism can produce as a system things that we consider to be moral, especially from a Christian perspective or things that are like immoral. And so, you know, you could think of like entertainment that is like kind of raunchy or something like that being being something that's, you know, standard Christian tradition would say is immoral, but it's something that can be produced under capitalism. So the system itself is sort of indifferent. And so one of the things that this leads to is that capitalism is also in a sense but with the people driving it indifferent to whether or not capitalism continues. And what I mean by that is Joseph Schumpeter has a, an idea that the ultimate death of capitalism will come from capitalists. That is people who own capital in society or people who are very wealthy, sort of like the people who own businesses. And his thought process was this, is that capitalists are going to get a lot of wealth from the system of capitalism because we what we just talked about, it's going to grow society. They're going to get a lot of wealth. But then the best way for those people to keep their wealth isn't to allow all their competitors to grow wealthy as well. It's actually to use that wealth to make sure that they're the only ones who stay wealthy. And there's going to be competitive pressure to, to try to get rather capitalists to lobby politicians to destroy capitalism itself so the, the top can stay on top. And so that was Schumpeter's basic idea is that capitalism, or capitalism would be destroyed by capitalists. And I think that this ties in pretty well with what we're talking about right now, which is that if, for example, free expression, having sunlight to disinfect bad ideas, things like that are an essential component of a free society, maybe capitalists trying to capture a bunch of profit by responding to the demands of consumers who are, you know, seeking to purge the market of certain things, maybe that's going to undermine capitalism too. That is maybe getting rid of, you know, certain books because we find them to be immoral in themselves, maybe that's going to have an effect on the system and make the system less free because we're getting rid of the ability of sunlight to get rid of bad ideas. Yeah. And so it's that, it's that protectionist attitude that leads to the destruction of capitalism, as you're saying. And that's exactly what I brought up before with this protectionist idea that the government or otherwise should, that we should protect and, and conceal this stuff. But Schumpeter's one of his famous quotes is creative destruction, right? Or a creative destruction of his idea of, of that. And that is really at the heart of capitalism that I think is underappreciated. Most people who are anti-capitalist think, well, it's just the rich people getting richer and you need capital to be a capitalist, which means you need money, which means the poor don't, you know, won't be able to participate in it. And that's, that's what's wrong with capitalism in a, in a nutshell. I hear that time and time again. But really the idea of creative destruction is not on people's minds that we have so many examples of people who thought up something in their garage, right? They come from simple means and they built, you know, they were kind of built their own uh, businesses because something, this is a little Russ McCullough quote is that money is actually easy to find. Ideas are what's tough. And so if you have a great idea, something new that's going to break the, the current status quo, you'll find money, you'll find a capitalist or a financier, as I think one of those Kersner or, or uh, Schumpeter might have said, find somebody to finance your good idea if it's that good. And I'm glad you brought that up because it, at the heart of creative destruction, and you just said it, was a destruction of the status quo. And that's what gives, that's why Schumpeter's afraid of the capitalists, not, not capitalism, he's afraid of the capitalists, because the, the capitalist fears destruction of the status quo because the status quo is why they're on top. And so in order to undermine creative destruction, they get rid of the engine of creative destruction. That's the market economy. Yeah. 
I really appreciate and like the point that capitalism is amoral and the this idea that what capitalism does very well is engineer the economy such that it satisfies people's desires, right? And a lot of times the analysis that you get from people who are, you know, libertarian leaning of things like the Dr. Seuss fiasco is, well, it's a private company doing it. That's fine, right? Private companies can do whatever they want. But if we accept that capitalism is amoral and does just satisfy people's desires, then, and I think Peter's hinting at this, then given whatever your desires are, you may worry about the way your society is Uh, the direction your society is headed because capitalism is agnostic about what kind of desires people have. And everybody, no matter what uh, desires you have, thinks that some desires are better than others to have. And so that might get, this might bridge our discussion to talking about maybe, well, what ought you to do if you are the kind of person who thinks sunlight is the best disinfectant? And, you know, cards on the table, I do think that. What, how do you operate in a culture that seemingly and increasingly does not seem to think that sunlight is the best disinfectant? And, and do you guys have any thoughts on I can I can break down the, there's probably more, but like three paths that I see. And, and you know, they, they might even be two of them closely related. One is very opposite. One is like rebellion of a sort. And so this this could take on like different forms, but it would be involved with rebelling against the status quo by talking about, you know, you think that this is a bad idea to get rid of these things being very vocal or, you know, trying to create your own Dr. Seuss publishing house somehow. I guess that would probably be illegal based on our intellectual property laws or something like that. But you could imagine some sort of alternative system. Actually, I think. Uh, is it Barry Weiss? Is that her name? Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. I think she she released this website after the Dr. Seuss ban. This is a great example of Rebel here. She released this website uh, that had the text of those Dr. Seuss books. Like she tweeted it out. I'm not sure if she created it or what she had involved in it. I can't remember the name of the website, but it was just like a, a PDF, you know, page by page of those different books. And the whole point was like, we shouldn't ban books. This is ridiculous. Here's all these books. And so that's sort of rebellion. I think there's two other paths, though. One is, you know, described as like sort of the fleer, someone who flees from society. And so this could be like in a literal sense. And so I think that's, you know, Rod Dreher, for example, has written a book called The Benedict Option, where he's talking about, you know, essentially creating alternative institutions. And so Rod Dreher is a conservative Christian. He thinks the solution is for conservative Christians to get together and make their own stuff. So, you know, while society tends away towards, you know, conservative Christian values, I'm not saying this is a particular instance, but while it does that, he thinks that we should, you know, have our own schools and our, our own, you know, groupings and sort of self-insulate after St. Benedict who created monasteries, basically, is that we need to sort of like make a new monastery in the world. And so sort of creating alternative institutions and, and not being involved. And I'd say the third option is sort of like an internal separation from society. And so this is something like becoming an immigrant from your own society mentally. And so you stay in your society, you stay in your institutions, but you no longer invest emotionally in anything that's going on around you in terms of, uh, you know, the culture war or something like that. So this might on the surface look like giving up, but I actually don't think it's quite the same thing. So this is sort of like a, a spiritual immigrant from the, the country that you're in, as you could think of it. And so those are my three, sort of someone who flees and creates new institutions, someone who flees mentally, and then someone who's out, outwardly rebellious. So fight or flight or... Internal flight. 
yeah, internal something flight. Okay, I was trying to come up with something that might, uh, <laughs> might rhyme in there. Yeah, I had three approaches too, but they're kind of different. One is the, the fighting approach, right? Which is kind of like taking up the mantle. I'm going to fight against uh, all this censorship or whatever, right? Another option you could have is just submit to it, right? Just go along to get along. And you could do that by actively buying into whatever's going on or this kind of, look, I'm just not going to engage. I'm going to let this hopefully blow over. Kind of the quiet. And then, I mean, a third option would be, look, I don't have to fight but I'm not going to lie. And I tend to think that that's kind of like a minimally morally acceptable response that, yeah. and I don't mean like you're a bad person. If I mean, in the sense of like, you want to be able to look yourself in the face, right? And it's hard to do that if you are constantly, you know, saying things that you don't really believe. So you don't have to go out and, you know, be a firebrand about this or yeah. whatever. But if asked your opinion, you should be forthright about, you know, I actually think this, what's going on here is crazy. Yeah. And it's actually really easy to do. You know, sometimes when people ask me about things, I just preface what I'm going to say with, well, most people think I'm a crazy person, but here's what I think. Right. And then I'll say what I think. And, and it's true. A lot of people think I'm crazy, but, uh, <laughs> but I could at least say that I, I said what I thought. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of where I was at with things too, is that I, I want, I'm not always out there to publicly be saying stuff, but I want the opportunity to engage with the person at a, at a more private level. So I think I would fall into that category personally, despite us having this podcast, which all of our listeners, I guess here on our personal level of friends, hopefully appreciate this uh, level of engagement. But that's kind of how I feel about it is to be able to make a difference with somebody. I don't think the, 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 the fight to me, and maybe you guys weren't even saying this, but to the, the fight level or rebel level might just lead to places that isn't going to be fruitful, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with that. I think that's the problem with the fight option, actually. Like, the one response you could have is to, like, you know, tie the Dr. Seuss books to a stick and parade around town showing everyone the Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> right. But there, there's two problems with, uh, at least two problems that I can see is, first off, like, it's actually sort of a pathetic thing to fight for. Like, as we sort of talked about, some of the imagery in the Dr. Seuss books, you know, if not like the worst thing in the world is very like offensive and not something that I would like. It's not some, certainly something that I that I would never draw. Like, I would be interested in it. So, like to be the patron saint of like the, you know, outdated Dr. Seuss books, sort of like a pathetic calling in life. And so that, that's one problem with it. The second thing is like, I, I think you draw more power to the thing that you're fighting against when you fight in that way. Like, you know, someone can easily point to you. We talked about this a little bit with the stuff that happened on January 6th, too. When you draw a bunch of attention to the thing that you're fighting against in a way that, like, you know, it, it doesn't actually win you the fight. All you are is uh, sort of like a beacon of impotence. Like, you've just drawn attention to yourself as, like, something that is worthy of being destroyed, but not something that can actually win the fight. And so I agree. I don't think the fight in the, like, aggressive sense is uh, very fruitful. I find myself somewhere between this uh, not lie, which I think is important, but also I, I, I'm coming around more and more to like, to a certain extent, like internally exiling myself from what, from what society is doing. I think you have to have like a sort of a healthy sense of self and sort of dri driving freedom from your actions. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, sort of like I was talking about with the umbrella, you know, when it rains outside, to a certain extent, we all have to do that too. If it's raining outside, you put your umbrella up. Like this is just a law of society. I think like in, you know, the sense of culture and political laws and norms, it's true of this too, is that sometimes you have to put the umbrella up. So there are some battles that are not worth, you know, going out of your way to pick and this sort of thing. But I also do think that at the end of the day, if submitting to a truth becomes worse to you than, you know, just going along with it, then like true freedom would be in saying like, no, I'm not going to lie about this anymore. And so I think we, we have to reserve that the right to ourselves. When someone asks us about, you know, what's going on in the world, say, I don't think this is the best way. I think that we're doing something wrong here. I also want to say, and you know, maybe we can have an a entire podcast on Kierkegaard sometime, but he has this concept of the night of faith, where he's talking about somebody who is who really has religious faith. And he says, this person is happy, right? You can just watch this person interact throughout their day. He has this description of, you know, somebody going home to their wife. You know, his classic example of a night of faith is Abraham, who's terrifying, right? Um, but then he goes, there are, there are people who have strong religious faith out there today. And uh, one thing you note about them is how joyful they are. And so another problem that I think with this fighting approach is that it makes you like not a happy person <laughs> and people aren't attracted to ideas that seem like they make the advocate for those ideas miserable. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the most important things that we can do in addition to telling the truth is to try to lead your life uh, in a way that makes you happy and to be the kind of person that people want to emulate. So they can go, well, that guy seems, that person seems like they have it together. You know, what's their worldview or yeah. something like that? It's funny, as you said that, my dad has gotten that, those comments. He's a, he's a faithful guy. And I think two parts maybe was one is if you have God truly first, everything else is kind of small potatoes, right? And so then if, if you kind of live your life that way, then you do tend to, oh, well, this happened. Oh, no big deal. This happened. And you kind of have that joyful walk about you because my, my dad's been asked that many times, why are you so happy? And he, then that would give an opportunity for him to say, because I've got Jesus or whatever. And uh, he, he was always ready to be open that way, but he never, you know, he wasn't walking around with the stick of the cross, you know, always having it outwardly public, but through the way he lived his life, uh, he got that response quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good point, Justin, on, on the happiness. And I think a, a good way that we can see this is a lot of times the, the, the people who are, like, you have friends like this on social media, I'm sure all of you listeners at home, the people, and maybe you're one of these people. And so I, I suggest you listen to this because it's my opinion, you may disagree. But I think the people who are most unfree in terms of their relationship to cancel culture, the people who are most affected by cancel culture are the people who spent their time fighting against it, you know, very viciously. If you're at home posting on Facebook about Dr. Seuss and getting extremely worked up in conversations with friends and relatives, you know, burning relationships and, and you know, other things because of this, cancel culture is actually destroying your life. You're allowing, you're, you, it is, you're allowing something to make you a slave to its opposition. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to me, that's, that's just as bad as someone who's allowed that ideology to completely swallow them up. You, you might as well just be, a, you might as well be a proponent of it, completely obsessed with finding things to cancel. In either case, you know, your whole life is consumed by this thing. That doesn't mean, you know, we go along with everything, right? As a Christian, I think that you are, you know, it'd be immoral to lie if someone asks you, what do you think about Dr. Seuss? It'd be immoral to say, oh, it's totally okay to, to, to just get by. I think that's wrong. 
But to spend your life totally focused and honed in on, on this thing, you're yeah. making yourself a slave to cancel culture in you're the same putting, way. You're that putting another God ahead. Yeah. Right? So that, again, if God is first, uh, love the Lord God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, that's a pretty big call right there. And so there's not, there shouldn't be enough room to get that worked up about something in the simple world. That's right. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, any other last words? One last thing about being happy. I think having a great sense of humor is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually helps because yeah uh, you know being able to laugh at yourself is really important because a lot you know on both sides of this the amount of self-righteousness you find yeah. mm -hmm. um, is what can also be off-putting yeah and the inability to laugh at your position yep having some humility all right well that was a production of the gortney institute here at auto university we appreciate you all listening and uh, be sure to tell your friends about our podcast if you like what you hear. And uh, if you find a five-star rating out there that can ramp it up as high as it can, it helps other people find us. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks. <laughs>